Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Welcome to today's Kinney interview with Leonard Drury. Today we speak about water and sanitation, the mining sector, and mo most importantly, Len's book, which is coming out very soon, which is about the uh, dry zone hydrology in Myanmar. Len has been working in almost every country across the world over the past 35 years, and he's also worked for the government for 10 years, and he has a tremendous amount of knowledge. And being able to speak to Len was like being able to tap into the mind of someone who you can't really access publications by and um, otherwise have a, a difficult time really learning from. And Len was very generous in this interview, sharing his experiences across these 35 years and talking about the book that's coming out, and I hope you'll enjoy it. With that, I'm Karen Delfo, and here's today's Kinney interview with Leonard Drury. So, uh, Len Drury, thank you so much for taking the time to share to share some of your knowledge with, with the Kinney Initiative through this Kinney interview. It's great to be able to speak with you. It's good to speak to you too, Karen. I'm hoping we can get started with uh, you sharing some of, some of your experience, which is quite extensive and also providing some of your perspective, your broad perspective on uh, water, sanitation, the mining sector, um, and how how everybody's doing across the Indo-Pacific in terms of being on track towards achieving SDG 6. I've worked in almost 50 countries through um, Southeast Asia and Asia and Central Asia, Africa, Mongolia, all through Australia, Pacific the only place in Southeast Asia I've not worked is Cambodia. Every other country I've worked in and doing water projects. Um, water projects for um, village water supplies, town city water supplies, mining projects, um, refugee camps as well, um, broad base, uh, things like, uh, <clears throat> even things like um, hydropower dams being a team leader to uh, look at environmental aspects of, uh, of uh, major construction sites, um, all to do with water. I started off with um, the government for 10 years, and then for the last 35 years I've been doing basically international consulting uh, in the water sector. Um, different, every country is great to work in. Every country has different, different issues different uh, challenges um, but the important thing is is that you show respect to every person every country um, you obey the laws you understand their religion you understand their history you know where they're coming from what um, if sometimes they're in military dictatorships sometimes they're in war zones um, I've never worked in a what we may call a developed country except Australia. Um, every country I've worked in has been be considered um, not a, a developed country. So th there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of cultural issues, there's lots of tribal issues, um, and you have to understand each country individually 
to be able to work effectively in that country. Um, when, when you so there is jump a, in, sorry, when you jump into um, working in a different country, there's so much kind of cultural and psychological elements to being able to be successful in understanding that experience when you step in. How, how do you approach that? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you do do a study of the country and the history of the country, what colony it, was, what colony, um, it came from, and the tribal groups. But it's also a matter of... Um, of experience in that uh, many, many uh, war-torn countries have um, issues um, which you don't get in, say, the Pacific Islands. Um, but a lot of it is general knowledge, which you, you pick up over the years, um, and also the various faiths. Um, you have to have a, a pretty good understanding of the various um uh, various um, faiths. I myself am a Christian, an active Christian, um, but I understand Islam, I understand the Hindu faith, I understand Buddhism, and you have to show respect. The other thing is, of course, is that you're going into a country, it's their country, it's not your country, you're a guest in that country, and therefore you should behave as a guest and obey the laws. There are some countries where um, uh, you've got to be very careful, Places like Pakistan with the um, blasphemy law, you've got to be extremely careful what you say. Um, there are some countries where you have mob violence, you get this explosion of mob violence. And you have to understand that. You have to understand how to approach people. Um, I'd say the vast majority of my projects have been very successful because I don't go there as the expert. I go there to help people and to work together as a team. Um, I also find that, uh, I also emphasize that the most important people is not the project manager, it's myself, it's the team. And so the T-boy and the cleaner, my driver, are all part of our team and all need to show respect. And um, so I, I find that uh, you've got to get your, your knowledge base, but also you've got to go in that country knowing that you have something to contribute, but you're not the expert. You are part of a team to deliver a product. Um, a lot of other people that I've spoken with who've worked in not quite the extreme context that you've had the experience to work in, but in, in some of the other contexts, speak about the challenges of navigating political timelines, uh, project timelines, when a lot of this work is so engaging and so long-term. Have you come across those challenges and have you any success in dealing with them? Well, there's always a timeline and as the project manager, you have to deliver at, on that time. I've always delivered on time, but also I've, I have, uh, we are very much anti-corruption Everyone knows that when we go in, but we 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 show respect to people and we work as a team. And I've never had a problem. There are every country has its own particular particular um, way way of doing things. For example, I'm now working in Myanmar right now. It was a military dictatorship. I was there in '84 to '88 under military dictatorship. I was there in '88 when the riots started. Um, I'm now there when the political, um, the politic, the politics has changed. 
but um, uh, you, you, I've always delivered on time, but there's been some very, very difficult clients. Uh, I can think of one particular client who had no respect whatsoever for contracts and what was promised to be delivered by that government department. Um, they just didn't have the information. They just told lies to get the project going and then they expected us to um, do all the extra work um, without um, without any um, increase in, um, in funding. Um, so you've got to sit down with them and uh, negotiate pretty hard with them because uh, they expect as a foreigner that you'll do what you're what you're told to do, whereas I'm supposed to be doing what the contract says. But we've always worked it out. Um, um, never through any sort of corruption. Always face to face discussion and showing friendship towards them, even though sometimes these people are very very difficult people. You show respect to them, and eventually we come around to um, achieving the project. But but it is difficult. There are some very very difficult projects. There's quite a few disasters around. Um, but you've got to know how to work your way around these uh, these projects, around the, the very difficult people. And, and and there are some countries where a contract means nothing. Well, you um, you're obligated to carry out the project. You can either walk away um, or you sit down with them and you sort out the issues. And um, in many cases, we put in a lot of extra work. I mean, some projects we've worked 15, 18 hours a day for months at a time, seven days a week, to achieve what we needed to achieve. But it, but it has always happened. We've always achieved on time and on budget. I'm wondering if you could share what it was like just... I'm just wondering what the first few countries you were working in and what it was like. Okay. Well, my first country was Vanuatu, which was the New Hebrides. And it was an Australian aid project. I had to go from island to island, so from island to island, looking at the geology to, to be able to recommend to the Australian government what drilling rig they should, they should supply as an aid package to Vanuatu. So I had to sail between islands in the Pacific in helicopter rides. And I thought, this is pretty good. This is, uh, international consulting is pretty good. There's always tourists, uh, hotels staying in, uh, beautiful hotels, golf courses, lots of food, sunshine. And I thought, I thought this is pretty good. <laughs> A few months later, I was in in Myanmar in the military military dictatorship with my wife and three kids. Oh boy! Um, so my first introduction was Vanuatu, which is quite a beautiful place, and then a few months later, military dictatorship for three years. Wow! <coughs> with no infrastructure uh, for tourists, no, probably not no. a lot of golf courses. Well, <laughs> yeah, actually, there were golf courses if you were military, ah. um, but there was. Um, it was a military dictatorship, and so nothing was easy. We had to work six months in advance to get things in, because also a boycott in those days. It actually was a boycott of uh, goods going into Myanmar, or into Burma. It was called Burma in those days. We live in Rangoon. We had to work six months in advance uh, to get things to keep the project going. We had 29 drilling rigs, four drilling stations, 
water supply to 3,100 villages, almost 3 million people. And um, we achieved it all. But um, very difficult circumstances, you know. It, Burma had just opened up in those days after 20 years of the Burmese way of socialism. And uh, there were very, very few foreigners in the country. I suppose in, our, in the international school, there's probably about 10 children in the class. Um, so it was almost in, 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 um, individual tuition for our kids um, because we were one of the first people into that country after closure for so long. And yet it was a fantastic experience. It was fantastic. Um, great people. And you just have to understand um, how you can work, away, work around the issues um, of a country coming out of isolation after 20 years. Just like in, I mean, in South Sudan, it was after the civil war, and there's landmines everywhere, and you have to just uh, work around um, the unexploded ordinances um, to get the job done. So the first two pro, uh, uh, countries was Vanuatu and then Myanmar. Very, very different uh, major contrasts. We always had respect. Um, the Burmese people were very accommodating. But it was very difficult because to do something, you had to get permission to do anything. Every time we had to go into the into the dry zone, which is where we're working, we had to get a no objection certificate, uh, and we had to apply. And the principle was, if you heard nothing, we'd go. Um, but I had to go in the country every two weeks. Um, I had to go into the country uh, every two weeks to uh, look at the drilling. So every two weeks I had to get uh, a no objection certificate uh, approved. So we had to plan those in advance. There was no computers in those days. Um, our communication was um, a paper-fed, a paper-punch telex machine. That was our communication. Um, the telephone, <laughs> we, had, we, had a, we had a landline. But but it was but it was monitored, and we had to go through the exchange. There was an exchange we had to go through, and uh, you hear the click of the recording um, as you start to speak. And the telephonist knew us very well because there were very few foreigners there. Mm. And so they say, "What what phone number do you want? Do you want your Melbourne number or Sydney number or who do you want to speak to?" And they know knew our numbers. Um, so you know just. Uh, Instead of having a, a GIS person, we had a cartographer drawing maps for us. Oh, wow. Who actually individually, with letter set, drew all our maps. Uh, painstakingly did it. And uh, we couldn't have our own cars. Um, so we only had project vehicles. Um, and so um, our wives, if they wanted a car, as project manager, I had to uh, decide if a car was available for them or not. And it wasn't always available. Um, but the project manager's wife was always the first one that was refused, um, which is now my wife, um, because there was no favoritism. The important thing is, is the, the critical thing is our children, uh, all the project uh, families, the children were at international school and we knew something was coming along. 1988 was approaching, we knew there was going to be big problems. So we always had that. So they had um, evacuation drill at the school. So the first priority was always the children. Uh, so the cars were always available for the children regardless of what else. 
Um, to get up country, we had to fly. Uh, we weren't allowed to drive because we had to drive through areas of insurgency. So we flew up there. The drivers drew, drove the cars and met us at the airport at Mandalay on Yongu. Um, in those four years we were there, Burma Airways lost four aeroplanes um, through various accidents because there was no mentality of maintenance. So, you know, it's, it was an exciting time, but um, we achieved the target. Now, I had 40 counterparts. Wow, I had that's 40. a huge team. Hmm. So the projects I'm doing now in Myanmar, the, the directors were my students, were my counterparts 30 years ago. That's incredible. And as, uh, so they... They recognise you as the seer, as the teacher, because you taught them. So when you want something, it happens, because the teacher wants it for thir from 30 years ago. So the, the current project, writing this book has been a, a pleasure, because if I wanted some information, I got it. Yeah. You know, in those days, you had to, to go and see a government department, you had to, had to get an official letter, uh, sent across and get approval. Today, I just ring them up saying, can I come and see you? So the circumstances have changed considerably. Yeah, let's let's speak about this book. Well, the, the initial draft of the book, book was written when we were there in 1986-87. Wow. Um, the, the, the maps for the book, there are actually A0 maps, uh, colour maps of the geology and hydrogeology, they were printed in the Burma Mint, oh, wow. in an excellent mint, because it was the only place that had a secure colour offset printer. Um, but the book was never printed because 88, 1988 came along, the riots happened, the, um, um, the um, unrest happened, and all foreign countries withdrew money. They stopped funding projects. So the book was never printed. <coughs> so 30 years later, I've been back many times, my wife and I, we've been back many occasions on mining projects and oil and gas projects and uh, water supply projects, Mandalay City, uh, North Northwest Village Water Supply. And um, the opportunity came 12 months ago um, with AusAid to revisit the book and uh, to update it. So the, the initial base of the book had already been written, but of course after 30 years there's substantial changes in information. Um, and, and what I found was that when I went back, the doors were just open. Um, if I wanted information, I'd get the information. Uh, when I wanted to go in the field, the uh, people from the... Uh, IWMD, Irrigation Water Utilisation Management Department, would come with me. They've organised all the logistics and um, even many places. Um, when I arrived, retired hydrogeologists and drillers were lining the, the, um, street. the street yep. as I arrived. You know, just like very embarrassing, but it, it was... Um, a great pleasure because uh, it was, there was they were so enthusiastic 
to actually give me the information so this book can be prepared. Um, now, the 1986 book, the draft, um, many universities in Yangon have, uh, in Myanmar, have that draft and they still teach from the draft text of 30 years ago. Okay. Well, the joy doesn't change much, but no. the actual geology side has substantially um, changed. Yep. There's now big irrigation areas, there's big development of uh, artesian areas. Yep. Yeah, so that has substantially changed. And so it's just been updated. There are sensitivities, you know, and you have to understand that you know, the vast majority are actually are Buddhist and uh, giving water is very important in their faith. Mm. Um, and you get credit, you get merit points for it. So I've got quite a few merit points. Um, but it's, it, but you, you show respect because that is their faith. I mean, as a Christian, there's, there's a large Christian population there also. Uh, in fact, the sixth largest population of Baptists in the world is in Myanmar. Um, but you, you work with people of various faiths. Um, but you're there to encourage and to work with them, not to show that you are the expert. And, um, I mean, in, in Burma, if you're a teacher, there is great respect. There is great respect. Even though it was 30 years ago, um, when you go back, you're still their teacher, um, even after that time, which is humbling for me because uh, many other countries, they... <laughs> They don't. They don't uh, have that sort of um, respect towards people. Mm. Uh, but but you you uh, you work as a team. I, I had forty counterparts, and they're still my friends. Yeah. Uh, some have died. Some were, were died in ADA. Um, some are retired. Some are very senior. Some have left and and gone and, and gone into private enterprise. But they still come and contact me. They still came and saw me. Yeah. So when. When, as project manager, when with 40 counterparts, is that if someone died, you go to the funeral. Okay. If, if, a, if a grandfather died, you go to the funeral. You know, if a parent died, you go to the funeral. If a child died, you go to the funeral because you're part of the family. And, but, and that's what you do. You choose to be part of their lives. And uh, because of that, uh, a great bond is, is developed. And with the book that's coming out, I imagine that that can be seen by many as just a tremendous gift as water policy is being developed and legislations are being negotiated. Um, and you're saying, well, here's, here's this, this research that's been accumulated from you yeah. <laughs> that's been put together. There is, um, no publication like this, uh, in Myanmar. Um, Groundwater is seen by many as a mystery. Sometimes you put a bore down and you get water, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get salty water, sometimes you don't. It's actually really quite simple. Uh, once you understand the geology, that's why you've got to get this geology section correct. Once you know the geology, you can interpret quite well. Um, now, when I, when I uh, gave him the initial draft of this book uh, for the workshop and the maps uh, about a, I gave it to a month before the workshop what they did is that uh, they took the maps out and where they were drilling and they tested the maps compared to the results of the drilling and uh, 
I would go out to a site where a drilling rig was and there'd be um, my maps on the uh, near, near the drilling rigs. Um, and they would say, well, we drilled here because you said this and this, the book says this. They've never had that before. They've never had a yeah. guidance. They, they've got the knowledge. They've got the knowledge. But uh, I suppose... It's all that, together, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's it. And it really is, um, I think, going to be a great manual for all practitioners. Um, I've also suggested that, you know, it's not infallible. Um, these are generalisation, these maps. And within those areas, I say high yield, you might get one which is dry, but maybe 95% are successful. Um, and uh, what I would like to do is that in uh, every uh, six months, update it. And not myself, but get um, the Burmese GIS groundwater guys to update based on the new information coming in. Update the maps. I don't care if, if it's wrong. If it needs fixing, we fix it. Yep. Um, and I, it's, it's like a legacy is, is the beginning of the next stage of their, of their learning in that they've got the maps, they've got the uh, all the layers, the GIS layers. They can now, every six months, update the information. And um, if I'm wrong somewhere, that's great. If, if they know it's wrong, fix it. Um, but this is uh, also will be used by universities for lecturing. Um, I've already lectured to the universities uh, when I was there a few months ago. I just presented things. But they've got a, a hunger to learn, and they know. They know. But in many ways, it's the... This book is actually for the managers and for the ministers and uh, director generals. Um, so that when they want to develop a project, they have something to base it on. They can look up, open the book and say, okay, there's high-yield areas, low salinity. We can work in this area. You wouldn't put a, um, a pump um, uh, in an area where there's no, where there's no, where there's no surface water, would you? Because people can see surface water. They know where the big river is and where the creeks are. They know where the pump. But with groundwater, you don't know because you can't see it. Nope. These maps are there for the management of the groundwater resource, and they can they can see where they should be developing uh, areas where uh, they're taking up too much water, areas where the they got huge artesian areas, huge artesian basins. Uh, they, they just flow. They just flow. There's no management of those systems and quite a few of the bores are now dry so they have they no longer flow you put a pump in they'll pump right. um, so the free water that they get through artesian pressure in many years has uh, stopped um, but they they are recoverable some are recoverable if they put in a a philosophy of turning pumps turning bores off when not being used when not required irrigation turn the artesian bores off and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of more things to be done. This is just the, the book is there to identify what are the issues besides helping the management side. What's missing? What else do do the Burmese require to be able to adequately manage their resource? And so I'm hoping the next stage um, will will start with AWP to uh, help in the management of the resources they've got. So I just I want to back up because I feel like we've made an assumption and maybe it's good to clarify that that there is a tremendous amount of groundwater in in Myanmar at the moment. 
Um, there, is, there is more available than what they're taking out. Yeah. Uh, basically, there's no monitoring. There's no monitoring. Okay. Which is another issue. But when you actually do the water balance calculations, there appears to be more uh, water in, in aquifers um, available for sustainable yield than what they're taking out. Well, the, the book actually has water balance models for various locations uh, within the dry zone in, in the text, indicating the likely uh, amount in storage, how much recharge is taking place, what discharge is taking place through pumping and also through discharge to back to the river. So there actually is a water balance uh, models for the whole dry zone in wow. this text. Well, you know, it's just DVA in the United States of America is a bit different in that um, the water belongs to the landowner, yeah. whereas in most countries it belongs to the government, mm. and uh, you you get a license to be able to extract water, but it doesn't belong to you. Yeah. It belongs to the government, and you get a permission to extract it. So different countries have different rules. Uh, uh, yeah, well, with, in places like Myanmar, it, the, the the water belongs to the state. In Australia, it belongs to the state. Yeah. It belongs to the various um, state governments. And uh, so the state governments, um, it's in their interest to know um, how much resources they've got and how they can manage it. Yeah. And I'm thinking with this book coming out, it, it just sounds like you're articulating two concrete next steps that are going to be following. And one is um, sort of the fine-tuning of the resolution of the knowledge that's being presented in the maps. And the second is the potential for setting up some sort of uh, monitoring scheme in order to directly impact upon the management of that resource. Is that is that a good interpretation? There are, there are many, um, many um, viable uh, management tools that have been recommended. Yeah. Um, in the book itself as well? In the, in the book, yes. Okay. It's, uh, like AWP, uh, they've, they've got the book and, and they will discuss with what they want to do uh, with, the, uh, with water management in Burma. Um, monitoring, um, uh, the Korean government is interested. They haven't yet agreed to it. Um, but the book indicates areas where additional assistance is required and um, like groundwater modeling there's no groundwater modeling of any aquifer in in Myanmar because there is no skills in groundwater modeling um, there's also monitoring there is things like radiocarbon dating to get an understanding of the age of the water because mm. uh, the uh, the book actually uh, has radiocarbon dating in for some areas uh, which we we did for for this book, so we actually know the age of the water uh, in various parts of the dry zone. And uh, <laughs> oh well, you know, it can be from two thousand to uh, twenty thousand years old. Wow. Okay. Uh, some of the some of the drilling is over three hundred meters to get to the water table in some areas. Um, so it's uh, there are many different suggestions of the way forward. Um, also suggesting that maybe there should be a uh, geology and hydrogeology of the total country rather than just the dry zone because the dry zone is only about a third of the Irrawaddy Delta, uh, Irrawaddy River Basin. Okay. So there's many, many um, 
suggestions of what um, additional work um, is required. Uh, the Burmese themselves are very, very capable people. And the young kids, the young professionals are very enthusiastic to work with you. The book also, uh, the book also has sections on suggested research for academics also Ooh. to say, well, I think that we should be looking at this and maybe we could do this and look at this as far as future research for institutions as well. Yes, yes, it's, um, there's some basic stuff there and there's some uh, more, um, more, uh, input where international uh, assistance may be required. So there's actually recommendations on management and also there's recommendations on research. I cannot wait for this book to come out. When will it be, um, <laughs> available? I guess is the question. Um, the launch is due mid mid October. Okay. Um, so as long as everything comes together, <laughs> um, mid October. And I guess the book will be both in English and in Burmese. No, no, just English. Just English. Just English. Uh, it's three hundred pages. Yeah. And there's sixty figures as well. Wow. Uh, the sixty sixty figures took over six months to draw in English. Um, but to, I mean, all the, all the professional people are very fluent in English. Okay. In Myanmar, um, it's only when you get down to the village level that you need to understand some Burmese. But of course, I mean, we understand a fair bit of Burmese ourselves, and we actually will say, like, give greetings and thank you and whatever and courtesies in Burmese um, because we're we're one of with them, but. Um, they all speak English. All the professionals, all the universities are uh, taught in, in uh, English. All the theses are in English. Um, so we don't really have a ling language problem at, at the professional level. Sure. It, you know, it was a British colony to start with. Mm. Uh, um, and then when Naywin took over in 1962, just after that, English was stopped being taught for 20 years. In the mid 1980s, um, they realised the, the the issue that people were trying to go out of Burma to actually go to universities outside the country, and they knew no English. So it was then decreed that all lessons would be in English in Burmese schools. Um, so they all speak English these days again. Um, so we don't have a we rarely have an English problem unless we, we, when we're working in villages, we do, but um, not um, in normal um, operations. We, we always, our working language is English. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all the maps are in English, but uh, they, they are getting the layers, they're getting all the GIS layers, and they can change it um, and change the language if they wish. Great. Um well, is there anything else you'd like to share about the book or the book launch or um, what's coming up? The recipients will be government departments and um, uh, predominantly government departments, but also NGOs. Um, there'll be there'll be some books given to to specific people who have contributed greatly to the book. Uh, World Bank ADB also. Um, so there is a big spread, but it's going to be an e-book, so anyone can download it. 
Wonderful. Uh, I mean, there's 50 being pre uh, prepared, like the official handing over at the book launch, but it would be an e-book, and um, there actually will be a electronic, there'll be a disc with each book so that people can run off copies if they wish, but it also will be an e-book so people can download it as well. With your just kind of unique perspective, working across almost 50 countries, um, how do you see things evolving with the SDGs and where do you see some of the real opportunities for making progress in that space? There's a lot of, sorry, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, <coughs> as more information becomes available, um, I think one big problem in most, in a lot of countries is the lack of data. Quite often the data is there, but it's sometimes hard to get. Yes. And so people don't, uh, when they develop projects, have the full understanding of what um, uh, is going to happen. Um, uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of disasters, World Bank, ADB, institutional projects which actually worked out to be disasters because they don't approach it. They approach it in an engineering way, but that's past history. But today it's more of a engineering and social um, aspect. And the important thing as far as I'm concerned, is when you're doing a village water supply um, or town water supply, it has to belong to the people. Um, the, the community have to take ownership of the project. Uh, I've seen so many cases where, like UNICEF put a bore in, hand pump, they pump away, the pump breaks down, oh, UNICEF needs to fix it because it's UNICEF. No, it's the, it's the community who owns that. The community must take on responsibility. So all the projects that I work on for the last 10 years or so, there has to be a community participation. You just don't give them a well, don't give them a bore, don't give them a pump. You give them 80% and say 20% they have to raise. They've got to dig the trenches. They've got to build the water tank. They got to believe. They got to actually charge for the water, so that there is money available for maintenance, uh, to repair the pump. Um, those bores we put in 30 years ago, they're still being used. They're still being used yeah. because there's community. Uh, every village has a, a water committee, and they are responsible to make sure that they collect water, uh, collect money, and uh, the pump is maintained. So. I think we've learnt a lot over the years, um, and uh, we have to make sure that we don't go there as you now. This is what we're going to do. Stand back. It's a community. We have to work with the community because when we leave, someone's got to look after it. And I've seen so many cases where it just is disaster. No one. Something breaks down. That's it. They go back to their old ponds and polluted water. Yeah, yeah. With uh, just changing tack a bit, mining projects are very different. Mm. Uh, mining projects are so easy uh, and yet so controversial. Um, but the client is always most clients. Mining clients are fantastic. If they need something, if nothing, something needs to happen, they approve it, go and do it. Um, 
they work with you all the time. Um, and so the mining projects have a, has a social aspect. I mean, there's always an environmental social impact assessment associated with a mining project. Uh, so the mining company has to work with the community. Um, but that's very, very different because during the operation of the mine, the mine operates everything. Yeah. You know? yeah. Whereas if something breaks down, the mine fixes it. Yep. If it's a village water supply, breaks down, oh, nothing happens. <laughs> it's quite different, but, you know, with uh, well supplies, uh, quite often when the mine finishes uh, as a well field, um, it's handed across to the community anyway. Yeah. Um, but all the mines these days, all the international mining companies are very responsible as far as cleaning up anything um, because they have to. Um, of course, the legislation, like Australian mining companies, they go according to Australian law. Yeah. Uh, if, they're, if they're actually on the stock exchange in Australia, the Australian government makes sure that um, everything is done in the same way as what they would do in Australia. Uh, they're very strict. So, yeah, very different. Um, refugees, of course, are different again uh, because they're not there to train people. You're there for emergency to actually get water in for, um, within a few days, you know, to uh, address a issue, uh, which hopefully won't be a long-term um, water supply, but quite often they end up being a long-term water supply. Unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, different projects have different criteria um city water supplies of course like i did mandalay city water supply we talked about myanmar it's run by the mandalay city development committee which is a big government department um so they make sure that there's monitoring there they make sure that the pump works uh, but village water supplies you've got to have a community um every town water supply every town in myanmar has a township development committee and they are responsible to maintain to collect money and to maintain that water supply um, so down to a town so uh, they they carry out their own maintenance and they're really good very very competent people but when you get down the village level it's a different situation yep each 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 town has uh, is uh, uh, under law they have to form a committee, yeah. and uh, and they're paid. You know, and they raise money. They sell the. Uh, it, it operates various ways. Sometimes the government will give them a grant if they uh, if they haven't got too much money. The government actually will help them, but they're supposed to be autonomous. They're supposed to be running their own water supply. So they collect the money, and they employ people. Yeah, just like any sort of town water supply in Australia or the United States or France. Yep. Um, I'm just, I think that this has kind of big implications for other countries, um, who are maybe looking at community water management solutions. Um, and I'm wondering how issues such as corruption maybe have been addressed in, in this sort of structure. If you have any thoughts on that. Sticky question, uh, I realize. You know, corruption's always a problem, but the trouble is, you never participate at the start because once you start, it's a spiral. You just can't escape it yep. when people, people know you've started. So yes, don't do it. The corruption is always a big problem in many, many countries. And the, and water supplies is just um, 
uh, one of many um, commodities where it's quite rampant. Um, yeah. And um, you know, you just have to. Uh, it's, but it's not your. It's not your country. No. You know, it's, it's up to them. I mean, you can comment on it, but it's not your country. You cannot go in there and tell them what idiots they are. You may think so, but you have to show respect to everybody mm. to, to survive. But you see it. You see it everywhere. Is is that um, there is rampant corruption in a lot of commodities: electricity, water, yes. sewage. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> I just want to leave you some space if there's anything else you'd like to speak about before we conclude the interview. Well, actually, you know, it's also um, when you're traveling so much, you also got to have a wife who actually supports you. you or a husband, have, right? <laughs> or a husband, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who is part of the team. You know, um, for me, the project manager's wife is absolutely critical. I'm sometimes the bad cop, she's the good cop. You know, um, it, it's it's a partnership. It's the attitude, you know, it's, it's, it's the big picture is that we both want to work on these projects. We want to do the things which we are excited about. Um, so my wife comes with me. Now all these, the, the long-term projects, my wife and the kids, when they were younger, were with us all the time. So, yeah, so uh, we, we've had some fantastic experience and also a lot of traumatic experience. There's been a few projects where uh, quite a few people have been killed. But you live with it. Yeah. If you, can't, if, you can't, if you can't put up with it, then you shouldn't be doing it anyway. There's, there's, always, there's always an attraction. There's always, you know, excitement mm. because each day is a challenge. Uh, yeah, I think, well, I think you may have inspired a number of people listening to this interview to maybe take a more proactive approach to bring their skills into maybe areas where otherwise uh, they might have not felt comfortable and mm. think of yourself as, as a team and embrace these, these challenges. And yes, we'll see. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories. And um, it's really been... Uh, uh, a pleasure. I, I feel like I've had a, a bit of a, a journey through uh, Myanmar or Burma in the mid mid eighties, and and the experience that you've had, you've been very generous with sharing. So thank you very much. Kini is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Kini connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at kini.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.